Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode of Tech Intersect, I speak with Jill Carlson, co-founder at Open Money Initiative and principal at Slow Ventures. Now, Slow Ventures invests at the center of technology and on what they describe as the edges of science, society, and culture. And it gives founders the resources, connections, the experiences, and empathy required to build strong, sustainable companies. Besides being a super fan of her impact on the tech space, I asked Jill to come on the podcast after seeing her informative and really well-resourced tweet. It was a tweet thread, actually, or a Twitter thread, about the privacy invasion concerns that protesters may experience when advocating zealously for change, especially given all of the publicly available information about location, specific actions, etc. on social media. So in that thread, she shared tools and tips for how activists, organizers, and protesters can and should manage their online activity and digital footprint in order to protect their privacy. We also talked more generally about the value of tech as a tool and the critical importance for women in particular to embrace tech and the fourth industrial revolution build and the need for safe, supportive spaces in which to learn, excel, and participate at the center, not just at the edges. Okay, time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Today, I am so stoked to speak with Jill Carlson. She's the founder of the Open Mic Initiative, a nonprofit research organization working to guarantee the right to a free and open financial system. Love that. We'll talk more about that. She's also the co-host of a podcast about cryptocurrency called What Grinds My Gears. And the the IP lawyer in me loves a good trademark, so I'm already all about that. Uh, She does that with the incomparable Melton Demers, and, and we'll certainly talk about the podcast as well. She's a startup advisor. She also, one of my favorite things about her is she regularly gets us all the way together on issues and provocative notes and, and things that we should all know, best practices with her Twitter thumbs. She has a mean Twitter game, so I'm going to drop her Twitter handle in the show notes. You definitely have to follow her. But before we get into all of the things, I want to welcome you. So Jill, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. Awesome. So thank you for your patience as we worked around some things, but I know that there are no accidents in life and things happen when they're supposed to. So this is our moment, Jill. This is our moment right now. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm ready to own it. (laughs) Awesome. So what I love to do before we jump into some of the other uh, things that I want to talk about is to share with the audience your origin story and and what led you to the work that you do, blockchain and technology uh, and privacy. I love a good story. So so tell us the story that brought you to this moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. And 
This is one of the things that I love about the cryptocurrency space industry as a whole is that everyone has their own unique origin story. And I think that it tells you so much about the lens through which they come at this technology, because goodness knows there's a multitude of lenses to take. So <laughs> absolutely. Uh, what, what I'll share with you is that the way that I first really got interested in Bitcoin, um, it was back in 2012, 2013, when I was working on Wall Street. And I was working at the time as a bond trader on the Latin America desk, which meant that I was trading the government debt of countries like Argentina and Venezuela, Brazil, Mexico, etc. And some of those countries, as I'm sure you and I'm sure some of your listeners may be familiar with, were undergoing, have continued to undergo periods of economic upheaval. So experiencing things like mass inflation, even hyperinflation in the case of Venezuela, which is actually extremely rare for countries right. to, to experience. Um, right. Things like capital control policies in which people can't freely move their money across borders. And at this stage, I had heard of Bitcoin before. I had candidly heard of Bitcoin in the context of the dark web right. and of people trying to buy drugs online using <laughs> Bitcoin. And I had been somewhat skeptical of, of its ability to ever go mainstream through that lens. Mm. But while I was working on this trading desk, again, you know, dealing in the local currencies and debt of, of these countries... I had a friend and a colleague down in Argentina mention to me that he was using Bitcoin in a very different way to get his money offshore and out of the inflationary Argentine peso. Right. And that really struck my interest. And that led me into academia. Actually, at one point, I had applied to graduate schools to do a master's with a view of doing a PhD in international political economy in something very sort of dry and on the straight and narrow um, <laughs> and ended up pivoting within that degree program to basically doing all of my research on Bitcoin and how it intersects with the financial world and financial markets and regulation. And so I'm sure that you, Tanya, can perhaps appreciate that, especially at the time, this was 2015, my professors were by and large less than impressed <laughs> right. with the left turn that my research had taken. Um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of the origin story. And as I mentioned, I think that that says a lot about the lens through which I have always looked at these technologies and, and their capabilities and what they can offer us that nothing really has been able to offer us in the past. I love that your story, it actually, I have a, an episode coming out tomorrow with Clev Mesador, uh, who does a lot of work on the Hill and, and inclusion and equity issues in, in blockchain. And, and what we were talking about is that you can't possibly know everything about the space, but you also don't have to abandon your expertise that led you to the space, right? You Absolutely. learn and, you know, you get under the hood and learn enough so that you know why it has meaning and what you can bring to your particular area. And then you take a deep dive, right? So Absolutely. that yeah. was the and thing I, that brought me for sure. And I think that that speaks to something, and I know we'll talk a bit more about sort of inclusion and what that means in the crypto space mm. in a few moments here. But something that I just wanted to touch on right off the bat, because I think that it dovetails nicely with the insight that you just made, is that 
that's something about the cryptocurrency industry that I have so appreciated mm. is that everyone is an expert in something because everyone mm. had the lens through which they came into the space, whether it was because whether it was because they were a dealer on the dark net, whether it was because <laughs> they were working on Wall Street, as I was, whether it's because they were an expert in securities law and came into it from that perspective, whether it's because they were they had expertise in decentralized technologies and had been working on things like like BitTorrent previously. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their area of expertise, but then there's just as many areas in which any given one of us has very little context. Right. And I think that that's, to me, been a really amazing and beautiful part of my experience in this space is I'll have conversations with people and I'll go from having them explain to me about some cryptographic primitive. And then mm-hmm. in the same conversation, they sort of turn to me and rely on me for my relative expertise, I suppose, <laughs> in sort of financial markets and and asset structuring and things like that. And I think that that in certain regards does sort of engender, uh, at least in certain areas of the space, mm-hmm. an environment of real inclusion because everyone has to be humble if right. you're going to get anything out of it. Everyone has to be humble about so much that they just can't possibly know, especially when they're first coming in. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. You're absolutely right. So, you know, there, there are two amazing points right there. One, that signals to me or suggests that there's some space for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you decide, and, and it is a humbling space to be sure. Um, and thank God for the YouTube universities of the world and, and <laughs> the conversations that we all have when we were meeting IRL. Um, we continue those conversations online, but I have found that as long as you, in most instances, and, and it is not without its issues from a, a diversity inclusion point of view, but I, I think that it's more reflective of the, the larger um, financial and technology sectors. So when you get into something that's super fringy and specific, that's just a microcosm of what we already know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I have also found is if you have a sense of respect for the space, and 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 I did. You, you come in and just connect with you, you. You try and find your tribe for sure. I loved the fact that there are some spaces just for women, but I also go to all the other things where I might be the only woman or one of yeah. two, and and more often than not, the only person of color or black person. So yeah, you know. Um, but I have found spaces where I can have those those connections with people and really learn. And then, you know, it's so important and a lot of the work that you do and how you connect is to make sure that there are spaces where people can get information without feeling judged or insecure. That's, I feel like that's the next level that we have to get to, to make sure if we're really going to scale this and have the average person 
jump into this insane deep end of the ocean. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, something that you do really well on this podcast, something that Meltem and I have certainly aspired to do with our own podcast is just talking about the concepts and talking about the advancements that this space is making in terms that are accessible. And mm. I think that this is an area that, you know, this this space has really fallen short at times is is introducing just increasing amounts of jargon to the point where there was a point in 2017, 2018, for <laughs> sure, where it felt like I was entering conversations and, you know, hearing acronyms and, you know, the the NFTs of the DAO. And it, you just, you know, those two, I, I happen to know what they mean, but it felt like, right, it felt like this, this alphabet soup was just being thrown at me. And I was, yeah. I remember thinking at the time and it still often strikes me. I mean, my gosh, I spend basically full time on this space and I can barely keep up, but you know, right. how can we, how can we expect to bring in and be inclusive in all regards, you know, whether it's gender inclusion, mm-hmm. um, race and people of color, but, you know, part of part of all of those sort of intersections and, and identities is to say that, you know, everyone is coming into this from a very different background and with very right. different priors and with education on on very different parts and aspects of this space. Mm-hmm. And it's so multidisciplinary. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, just in general, is just having sort of standards of language that Mm. are accessible. You know, if we're going to make it a goal to have this space grow and grow the pie, we Mm. have to find better ways of of communicating and talking about it. Um, And that really comes to the, you know, like the blockchain education or the crypto education and, and, you know, all the conversations about how a user might interface with projects, but how do you go beyond just use to inviting other people to actually participate in the build, various layers, et cetera? Um, Because that's just where we are. Web3 is what it is, the fourth industrial revolution and all of that, not tomorrow, today. And so I'm going to shout it from the rooftops as much as I can. But as you said, in a way that makes it more inviting and more accessible. And I think, you know, um, and I'm sure you have uh, a lot of thoughts around when Meltem Demers goes to the Libra hearings last year and Facebook is now the face of all the things that people are worried about. And she made such a, I was actually, I had the great fortune of being in the room when she was testifying. Um, oh, fantastic! It just—I just, I just so had to watch it on TV, like the rest of uh, the, the rest of the world. But that must have been great. I just—I all of a sudden I wasn't hungry and didn't have to go to the bathroom. I don't know, and I was there all day. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but I was like, I am not leaving this room because I'll never get back in. Um, but I just thought she did—you know—she did us such a solid in in the ecosystem to really start to make the case and make it plain. Everything people legislators are concerned about with corporate coins, branded coins, whatever, is what Bitcoin is not. And and I was, I worried about what was going to happen at those hearings. And when we came out of it, I was like, that was amazing. That was the first time we can start to have an authentic conversation. Like, oh, oh, you're worried about that? You're worried about privacy, security? Yeah, that's not Bitcoin. These other things we have to have a conversation about. And transitioning to where we are in terms of the the pandemic and social unrest and conversations around 
digital dollars, you know, from the House Financial Services Committee had uh, mm -hmm. a hearing on that topic today. I know it didn't get into the original CARES Act, but I think it's not a matter of if, but when. We will see mm -hmm. some form. So I'm wondering what you even think about that as we transition from one, what are the digital and technological tools available to people that come from crypto? And then we'll transition into some of the privacy concerns that are coming up as well as people transition to social uh, unrest and advocacy and protest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but it's such an important topic and such an important question. You know, as I look around the world today, on the one hand, I I see much of the same as we've seen sort of throughout history, even throughout the last couple of decades. Mm. Um, you know, it's always easy, I think, to feel like, oh, this moment in time, this moment in time is special <laughs> and unique. But as someone who has long been a student of history, I, I can also detect and appreciate the fact that in many ways, there's nothing new ever under the sun. That right. having been said, I think that this moment in time in 2020 is unique in a number of ways, not, not least of which is the pandemic. But I think that in a way, the, the pandemic, its global nature, the fact that it has driven everyone sort of indoors and driven mm -hmm. people to have space from each other, I think that it's created space actually for people to reflect and unlearn and question themselves and everything that they assumed about the world. And I think that, you know, growing out of that kind of environment, it's it's no surprise that we see protests emerging, whether it's, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, whether it's what's going on in Hong Kong. And you know, I think that there are two sides of that that are worth acknowledging. The first, of course, is what I just mentioned around mm. sort of, um, you know, the the movements within people's hearts, within people's homes, and sort of at the individual level. And then there is also the fact that partly out of necessity, one could certainly argue, the pandemic created an environment that was at least unprecedented in the United States in, mm -hmm. in the last hundred or so years in terms of enforcement, in terms of enforcement against sort of what we have come to assume are, are God-given rights and our freedoms right. to be walking around the streets or, you know, to be able to go out and enjoy a meal or, or what have you. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I think that there is a real fear that 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 then translates into some kind of a larger power grab, um, mm -hmm. as we've seen in certain countries. I think, you know, one could make the argument either way about the United States and in other countries like Hungary. It's it's become sort of much more clear that it's it has translated into much more of a power grab that may be longer lasting. But all of that's to say, I think that the coalescing of all of these issues at this moment in time. I think that it makes these conversations all the more salient about privacy, about civil liberties, about human rights, really. And that's not even to start to touch upon sort of what's going on on the economic side, obviously, conversations around, you know, perpetual negative interest rates and right. the Fed's money printer and, and inflation. Um, but it is a very interesting moment in time to take another look at Bitcoin and, and all of these associated technologies 
and really see how it starts to fit in and, and serve real use cases outside of pure sort of speculation that, that we've seen over the last few years. And so used to having everything in front of them right away that we forget that innovation just takes time. I, I myself, I get frustrated too. Why? And you know, this is being one of my best friends is, Hey, I talk to you all the time. Hey man, I'm frustrated in the fact that I can't seem to just get there in mm -hmm. the next day, but that's just not how these things work, right? Innovation needs to be planned out. It needs to be very methodical. And then when it finally hits, that's when it seems like to everyone else that it, it sort of just came out of nowhere. But to you, you know, the amount of dedication that it took over that time. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. There's a more cost-effective and time-efficient way to reach your leading-edge learning and earning goals to put you ahead of the stiff competition in this fast-paced, tech-driven economy. You need skills, credentials, and a fast track to a competitive advantage. You need it now more than ever, and I can help. Invest in the future you've always wanted, and in as little as three weeks, you'll be on your way to greater autonomy, control, and opportunity in your life. The Advantage Evans method puts you ahead of the curve with condensed, comprehensive online courses, curated content to leverage your current skills and expertise in order to succeed in the new economy, live coaching with me, networking opportunities, and a digital badge on completion. Upcoming courses include From Cash to Crypto, Buying Your First Bitcoin, and Register Right, Protecting Your IP, Brand, and Business. Ready for your advantage? Well, get on the fast track to learn and earn at AdvantageEvans.com. And now, back to the conversation. Because do you find this to be the case when you're speaking with folks in the States or other areas that rely on the dollar and they don't immediately see the benefits. It's like, well, I have dollars and that's fine and I have a credit card and that's fine. So I don't get it. I don't get it. Right. So maybe they don't understand the original. Well, obviously when we go back all the way to Satoshi and what was going on at the time that gave, I don't know. Um, maybe we'll never know whether it was carefully orchestrated for such a time as 2009 yeah. or the bottom just happened to find, fall out, right? And yeah. it's such a time as that. Um, we find ourselves probably on the precipice of something like that as well, but it's difficult for people to understand if they don't understand unbanked, underbanked. If I also feel that people are just used to this existing system and the media job on crypto um, hasn't helped, so they'll take some time, I imagine. But do you find it difficult to explain to people some of those, the benefits, or do you even try? Oh, yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. But I, I think, again, I think in this environment, that's changing. Mm, I think I that there are so many technologies, tools, um, you know, uh, approaches, methodologies, et cetera, that are so easy to dismiss. Mm. until you really need it and it's so easy to dismiss as sort of you know fringe or or stemming from ideology or you know well well that's that's just sort of crazy and something for right. for doomsday preppers and it's so easy to dismiss all of that again until you really need it 
And I think that sound money certainly goes in that category. So money that is resistant to inflation um, mm-hmm. or really just sort of a hedge on on one's savings and wealth, money that is resistant to government seizure, all of these things. Again, you know, it's easy to dismiss until you need it. Right. Um, and the same goes for privacy, for tools around privacy. It's it's so easy to dismiss living comfortably as I do in the United States to say, well, you know, okay, probably the government is spying on me to some extent, <laughs> but like I, you know, I don't really care what they find out on me because I have, there is rule of law in this country and, you know, we have a criminal justice system. And again, mm-hmm. it's it's all well and good to say that until you don't have those things until you need it. And right. I, I long uh, sort of turned to places where I had some familiarity with and that were experiencing kind of the extreme in order to make this case, right, of, mm. you know, when it comes to sound money, well, look at what's going on in Venezuela. Um, right. You know, millions of percent inflation year over year for the last several years. If you go back to the 1950s, Venezuela was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Mm. And, you know, people don't appreciate that and sort of the the sharp and steep decline. And, you know, there with what with the, what's going on in terms of capital controls and government policies and price fixing, et cetera, mm-hmm. it's very easy to make the case for Bitcoin. Now, I think it's also very easy to make two mistakes, though, there. It's very easy to make the mistake of just saying, oh, well, just because, you know, it, there is this clear need in Venezuela, it's being used at scale. And this actually is the work that that I did with the Open Money Initiative and that we continue to do is to research the extent to which Bitcoin and, and similar tools and also just financial technology tools in general mm-hmm. are actually serving places like that. Because oftentimes, I'll tell you what the the brave new technology is that's really serving countries like Venezuela. It's the US dollar. It's it's literally mm. US dollar imports. You know, it's not always Bitcoin. So that's the first mistake that certainly I've made in the way that that I talk about this. But the second big mistake that, again, I will own and, and that I think I've made in terms of a lot of the work that I've done in this space, in terms of even the work of the Open Money Initiative, is it's so easy to overlook the need for these types of tools and technology. Again, whether that's sound money, whether that's privacy, whether that's other dissident enabling technologies, it's so easy to overlook the need for that in your own backyard in Mm. order to look for the most extreme need that you can kind of find highlighted in the world. Mm. And that's, again, you know, something that, that I am, am very guilty of in terms of dismissing a lot of the need for this in the United States over the, the course of my work over the last few years in favor of, again, looking for the most sort of extreme scenarios out there. But if the last few months have highlighted anything for me, it's that, all of this, you know, privacy tech, Bitcoin, et cetera, can be just as applicable in the United States. And it's just as important to do that research and advocacy work here as well. That's really helpful to me as I, I'm doing this three-week intensive with, with some small group, group coaching, mostly with uh, women, people of color, trying to find a way to empower folks who are complete new entrants also known as newbies, but new entrants who may have some exposure in traditional markets, may own a little real estate, some stocks, and, and want to 
put aside a bit of money to have some exposure, but they don't know how to do it legally, safely, and therefore they can't do it confidently. So I'm focused mm-hmm. there. And I was working on one of, um, kind of brainstorming, I haven't figured out this third module yet, but it was about, because I do like to talk about some of the problems in need of a solution that technology like blockchain may help, right? So if people can see that, then we can kind of drill down when they start organically asking questions. But I do find myself, even in the midst of the pandemic and social unrest, going across borders to figure out what exactly what you just said, what's like the worst case scenario. And for many people, they just won't be able to even grasp it. That's something over there, people over there, right? Right. Um, it's like, no, right. no, that's people here. That's you. You are the people. <laughs> right. You, you're the one who wanted to get your stimulus pay and it didn't come on time and this, that, and the other, right? So exactly. Yeah. That's super helpful yeah. for me to um, keep in mind. You mentioned privacy in the midst of the social engagement, the social justice piece, and those who do have their First Amendment rights at risk in this data-driven world, hyper-surveillance. We're seeing all sorts of militaristic actions that are combined with the government that um, may be getting in the way of people who are legitimately protesting, which is the foundation of this country. So when we connected on the, the Twitter thread, the amazing thread that you put together of some tools to help people when they are engaging uh, to to kind of manage their online activity, their digital footprint, protect their privacy um, so that it's not unreasonably searched and things of that nature. A lot of people found that helpful. I know I did. So do you want to talk about that a bit and some of the the, the suggestions that you made? Yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe we can link it in in the show notes, but I... I started a tweet thread the other day, and many other people have have since chimed in on it. It certainly wasn't all my insights about how to secure yourself, secure your life, your property, your digital property in the event that you are attending a protest, in the event that you are speaking up online in a new way or in new forums and, and attracting attention in that way. I am certainly no expert on this. I don't have sort of formal training in security. I am very lucky to have many friends in this space mm-hmm. who have taught me a lot over the years. And in a way, I consider myself lucky to have have been someone who's been in the, the cryptocurrency space and who's built up enough of a platform, I guess, to have been at times the on the receiving end of sort of targets of, mm. of these types of attacks, nothing overly nefarious at any point, um, thankfully. But, you know, it does, the first time someone tries to SIM swap you, and we can get into what that means, for example, it's it's a wake-up call, right? For the right. first time you find that one of your accounts has been has been hacked and that password is no longer any good. It's, it's a wake-up call in the same way. And I I was just reflecting on it a couple of weeks ago and thinking how many people are putting, you know, their bodies on the line, putting their voices on the line in new ways and for the first time. And that has been a cause for me to have a lot of hope and optimism about the future. But right. it does open you up to attack. And so some of the some of the things that I ran through very quickly in that Twitter thread, and there were a lot more resources out there on this, even just in the last couple of weeks. The EFF, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, put something mm-hmm. out that's that's great for those attending protests. But 
you know, first and foremost, lock down your passwords. Use a password manager. You can use one password or LastPass. They they both work well. There are also other options out there. And you know, one one thing that's always bothered me is it's it's very easy to give this piece of advice. Oh, use a password manager. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. But then even even for me, even for someone who's spent you know tons of time in this space, it can be very daunting to go through and set that up. You know, where do you begin? I have literally thousands of passwords at this point associated with my digital identity. How do I start going about changing all of those? You know, what should I prioritize? And then even, you know, when the first thing that happens when you go to set up a password manager, it will prompt you to create a password. (laughs) You then have to figure out, well, okay, what am I going to do with this password? Do I store it in the password manager? Because that's going to create sort of the the infinite loop problem. Um, And so, you know, what I attempted to do in this tweet thread, and again, we can run through some of it now, is to just break down in a much more sort of manageable way of, you know, how to think about, or at least how I think about prioritizing these things, how I've gone about creating the master password for my password manager. Um, You know, by all means, write it down. Please do not write it in your email or, (laughs) you know, in the notepad on your iPhone. In fact, probably write it down pen and paper by hand or write down a series of hints that will be able to to jog your memory back to it. Store it in a secure location. Here again, you know, most people don't have a safe in their house to store this kind of thing in. So what do you do with it? Um, You know, I know people who literally leave it in their sock drawer. That's probably not totally recommended, but you can start to get creative. You know, you can put it in, you know, in a box in the back of your refrigerator, probably now that I've said that, maybe don't do it. You start to get the idea. Like, oh, that was a good one. Right. You can can start to get creative with it. And it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like something out of sort of a, a spy movie, or it sounds like someone who is trying to sort of play spy. But in, in all seriousness, when you do start to speak out and, you know, create more of a presence for yourself again, whether that's in person, live at protests, or whether that's in in your own home, but speaking out digitally, you know, you can find yourself very quickly on the receiving end of threats. Right. And to be clear, it's not always, you know, I'm not even necessarily talking here about like sort of government surveillance or government threats, although that exists too. But it could just be you know, Twitter trolls who don't agree right. with you and kind of want to mess with your life for <laughs> right. for a few hours on a Sunday afternoon. So that's that's the first place is where I would begin is is just in terms of password security. Um, there are all kinds of physical security considerations that that start to crop up as well. One common mistake that I've seen people make is leaving their Strava profile for similar mm. similar apps public. Because mm. often these things default to being public and then, hey, ho, guess who can see, you know, where you're leaving from to go on a run every morning at 7 a.m. And then, you know, suddenly that that reveals a lot about you. And so right. things like that, there are very simple ways to be able to go into the settings on on an iPhone or on Android and see what's sharing location data. And so things like that, I think, you know, are just really low hanging fruit for people to to make changes around. And right. I think that it's, you know, there's there's no time like the present. I I will admit some of these things, even for me, I had hanging around on my to-do list for months before I 
I finally got around to them. Um, You know, this is years ago now, obviously, but if you've been waiting, if you're listening to this and you've been waiting for a sign, (laughs) this is your sign. Go do it. (laughs) This is it. This is affirmation, confirmation. Do it now. I saw one thing I've, I've gone through, particularly once you start entering this space and all of a sudden you become the tin hat person in your, you know, the foil, uh, hat person in your household, but, you know, you err on the side of caution. Now, you know, I, I think of even like cleanliness practices as we travel. I was the crazy person wiping things down already. My life literally has not changed. And now except I have a mask on, but um, it's really, really important. And to take it in steps, commit to do these things because it's not going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult. So start now because particularly with password management, just, you know, the bite-sized pieces for that. The one other thing that really stood out to me, and you made an excellent point, was about 2FA or two-factor authentication. Yes. And yes. so many people, to the extent they even do it, definitely rely on the SMS. So can you talk through why you say it should be an authenticator and not a text? Absolutely. So I mentioned when we first started to dive in here a few minutes ago, SIM swapping. Mm. So first, let's cover what 2FA is or two-factor authentication. This is merely fancy talk for what happens when you have a second way for the app, whether it's, you know, you're logging into Facebook or your bank account, whatever it is, for them to identify that, okay, this is in fact the person who we want to allow access here. So you punch in your password and then oftentimes what happens, right, is you get a text on your cell phone that gives you some code that you then need to punch into the website or the app and then they grant you access. Okay, fine. What's wrong with this picture? You know, it sounds it sounds sort of all rosy and good, the fact that, oh, well, that's good. You know, they're double checking. Well, actually, it, it can be very problematic because your phone number is actually one of the most vulnerable parts of of your identity or your digital identity. Because what people do, and this gets referred to as SIM swapping, so this this phrase that I keep saying, this is what it is, it's very Mm -hmm. easy for people to call up T-Mobile or Verizon or AT&T and steal your identity, pretend to be you. All they need oftentimes is your phone number and maybe one or two other basic pieces of information about you. And they call up and they say, hey, I just got this new cell phone. Um, I just got this new SIM card. I need to port my number over to it. You know, can you please make that happen for me, friendly person at Verizon? <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, the person, I don't mean to pick on Verizon, at <laughs> Mobile, they've, they've, they're all guilty of this. <laughs> they're um, not a sponsor, so go, go on. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay, thank goodness. Um, you know, lo and behold, they, they do it without asking too many more questions. And, you know, I and many others have even gone through the process of trying to set it up and call them and let them know, you know, hey, this is something I'm worried about. Can you please make sure that you actually verify my identity? If ever I, I call, you know, you think it's me calling in trying to, to port my number. But it's it's very difficult to get these telecom companies to change their ways. And mm. I you know, I think that I've, I've been relatively lucky. Actually, my mom at one point was the victim of a SIM swapping Mm. episode. I think that my suspicion was that that was because at that point I was still on her family plan. Yes. Mm. As a 28 year old, I was still on her family (laughs) plan. Don't judge her. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's, 
it's a really scary thing to have happen. It's it's a tremendous wake up call when it does happen to you of just how vulnerable your phone number is. And so for that reason, I want to highlight, you know, yes, it's good to use a second factor of authentication. Don't wherever you can, don't just use your password. However, ensure that it's not your phone number that you're using. Download Google Authenticator, download, you know, whichever authenticator app speaks to you in the app store, mm-hmm. you just search authenticator, a bunch will come up and use that instead. Instead, It's it's slightly less convenient than the text message thing, I will confess, but right. all of these little inconveniences, I promise you are worth it. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's the only thing worse is that something is convenient to someone who's trying to sim swap or steal your identity or otherwise harm you in some way. Yeah. So if you think yeah. this is difficult, try getting it back. Um, exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. Gosh. I see that I have kept you way longer than than you agreed to. So you are. I could talk all day. I could <laughs> talk all day, Tanya. This is great. I mean, there, there's a lot more to cover in terms of privacy and security. But I would definitely, definitely point your listeners not only to my tweet thread, where again many other people chimed in with other suggestions, like using Signal app instead yes. of iMessage, but also to the EFF guide. You know, all of mm-hmm. you who are getting out there in the streets and and participating in the protests. The EFF, again, has an amazing guide of everything from how to dress, what to bring with you, Mm -hmm. you know, how to set up your phone so that you can be secure in these settings, things like that. That's perfect. I will definitely drop all of those in the show notes, including um, ways that people can stay in touch with you. But tell them, um, as we close out, how people can get contact with you or follow, learn more about your work and the things that you're involved in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Twitter is is always good. You'll you'll drop my Twitter handle, I think you mentioned in the show notes. Um, I spend probably way too much of my day every day on Twitter. Um, Second only to me. Yeah. <laughs> Candidly, I don't always check my DMs. If, if you're like me and you were on Twitter through the 2017 ICO mm. hype, you will appreciate that your DMs can become something of a bucket shop of people still continuing to shill ICOs. But wow. you know, tag me in a tweet, anything like that, and and I'll I'll almost always reply. I also I'm not sure if you mentioned this at the beginning. I also invest in early stage startups. And so if that's something that you're working on, if you're in the early stages of of exploring starting a company, I'd encourage you also to email me. My email address for that is jill at slow, S-L-O-W, dot co. Perfect. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. I um, I forgot that we were recording. I was just talking. It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> do your job, Tanya. Pay attention. <laughs> this is very important. It's great. <laughs> I am really grateful for this discussion and for Jill's invaluable perspective on security and privacy in the age of social and political activism really, really, really critically important in such a time as this. I'm going to include a link to the Twitter thread as well as links to additional resources. So get your two-factor authentication, your password management, your encrypted apps, and, and all of the other tips in place ASAPidly, like immediately so that you remain as safe and secure as possible when advocating for a better world for all of us. That's all for now. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at 
Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.